I'd like to invite you to take uh, your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24 and read with me this text of Scripture today. And the title of the message today is The Lord Jesus' View of Scripture, the importance that Jesus Himself put upon the Bible. We are Jackson Bible Church. I pray that means more than just a mere label. I pray it means that we as a people love, treasure, hunger for the truth of the Bible on a daily, moment, moment even by moment basis, that we'll be a faithful congregation in this. And so I want us to look today at Luke 24. Jesus has died on the cross, and has come back from the dead on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. They know he's died, and they're just now learning that he's not yet still dead. He's alive. They all saw him die. They all heard that he had died, and their hopes were crushed because they thought he was going to rule as Messiah and drive out the Roman occupiers and Purge the Holy Land and return the prosperity of King David and King Solomon to the nation Israel. And now he dies in weakness. He dies in shame. He dies in disgrace. And their hopes die with him. What has happened? And they're in utter disarray. They're confused. They're hiding out in houses. And then on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, some of the women say, let's go to the tomb so we can pay proper respects to his body. And when they get to the tomb, they find the big stone rolled away and they see an angel. And the angel says, he's not dead. He's alive. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you to Galilee and there you will see him. And so that word begins to filter through the disciples, and they begin to get word, a rumor. It's just a rumor. We don't know for sure yet, but they they say they saw an angel, and they say he's alive. Can it be? Is it possible? Here are two on the road to Emmaus. One is named Cleopas, and we don't know who the other one was, possibly his wife or possibly a friend walking together, dejected. They walk, and they are so sad as they go. They said, we thought that it would be he That would redeem Israel. And Jesus kind of just slips in with them as they walk. And he says, what are y'all talking about? I'm paraphrasing. And they say, oh, you hadn't heard. Are you just a stranger in Jerusalem? Hadn't you heard what all's happened there these days? And he says, no, tell me. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, a great mighty prophet. Our chief priest killed him. And we thought that he was the Messiah and he was going to redeem Israel. And besides, this is the third day. And to add to all, to all of it, we heard that somebody said he's alive and we don't know what's going on. And Jesus says, we'll read our text now, verse 25, Luke 24. Then he said unto them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things 
and to enter into His glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. I would love to have heard that exposition of scripture, wouldn't you? <laughs> Somebody has said, if you could pick it one point in the Bible and interject yourself into it, transport back in the past and, and jump in, where would it be? What would it be? And you've heard all kind of opinions about what that would be, but this has certainly got to be one of the top contenders. I'd love to have slipped in there and heard Jesus open the Old Testament and say, all that right there was what was talking about. That was me it was talking about. He began at Moses. Moses wrote Genesis and the other four books of the Pentateuch. He takes them back to Genesis, probably back to that first gospel promise. See, their thought was this. Their thought was, Messiah will come in mighty power and will rule and reign. And Jesus came in humility and lowliness, and he rides into Jerusalem meek and lowly on a donkey. And then they betray him, and he doesn't resist them, and he doesn't speak words of authority over them and crush them with his messianic words. He just submits to their hands and they spit on him and whip him and kill him. And they said, this does not compute. This does not look like a Messiah to us. We were convinced he's the Messiah, but he's, now he's dead. And Jesus takes them back and he says, now look, we need to have a basic Bible lesson again. And you need to see from the Old Testament, beginning at Moses, Messiah is going to suffer and then enter his glory. And of course, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of church history. We had the advantage of chronology. We, we live at a point where we can look back and see there will be two comings of Jesus. The first time he comes to die, and he comes in weakness, and he comes in lowliness, and he comes to deal with the sin issue. And the second time he comes, as they thought he would come the first time, the second time he comes in power, the second time he comes in majesty, the second time he comes to put down all rebels, but the first time he didn't, and it didn't compute in their minds. And he says, now, we need to go back and have a Bible lesson, and I want to show you what you've missed. You should have read your Bibles more carefully. I'm going to show you how Messiah had to suffer and then enter glory. So I think he probably took him back to Genesis 3, the first gospel promise, where God told the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. And in the process of crushing your head, he's going to be bruised. His heel will be bruised. And I think Jesus probably used that to say, I, the Messiah, crushed the serpent's head and it cost me my life to do it. I was dearly, sorely bruised in the crushing of the serpent. I think he probably took him to Abraham and Isaac going up on Mount Moriah. The father and the son going to the place of sacrifice, and the son yielding to the father. I don't read in that passage in Genesis 22 where Abraham had to wrestle Isaac and get him on the altar. He didn't put him in a hole. He didn't put him in a headlock and get him on that altar and then bind him up. I read that Isaac was yielded to the father's will, and father and son go to the place of sacrifice, and the son yields to his father's will, and then Abraham receives him back as it were, from the dead. And what is that but a picture of the cross, the Father and the Son at the place of sacrifice where Jesus yields to that judgment that would fall upon him, and he literally came back from the dead. I think the Lord probably used that. Maybe he used 
The story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis 37 through 50, where Joseph's brothers hated him and where they rejected him and where they sold him for a few pieces of silver and to their thinking he's as good as gone and as good as dead, only to be preserved, exalted in Egypt, and there he would become the mighty ruler that would preserve both the Egyptians and the Israelites in the famine. What is that but a picture of Jesus? Rejected by his countrymen, sold for a few pieces of silver, and yet he's the one who sustains all of us. Maybe he took him back to show Joseph suffered and Joseph was raised and, and the Messiah, me, I suffered and, and now I will enter my glory. You've read your whole Old Testament wrong. You've missed so many things reading your Bible. And he gives him a basic theology lesson on the suffering of the Messiah and then the glory that follows. No doubt he took those two on the road to Emmaus to Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb where that spotless lamb would be killed and its blood would be put on the doorposts and all who took shelter behind that blood would be spared by the destroying angel and God would pass through the land and he would pass over those that were marked by the blood of the lamb and he would spare them from certain death. And certainly Jesus must have said, that's me. I am the Lamb of God and I shelter with my precious blood on the cross all who dare to take refuge in me. No doubt he would point to all the sacrifices under the old covenant, that whole system of sacrifices. You bring a sacrifice, you do it continually, you do it day, the morning burnt offering, the evening burnt offering, continually offering animals. That sacrificial system itself was a picture of the Messiah who will come and lay his life down in great shame and great lowliness. Messiah will suffer. Certainly he used Psalm 22 in this lesson. Have you read Psalm 22 lately? One commentator calls Psalm 22 the fifth gospel. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalm 22. That's the way a commentator put it, humorously. But to make a point, Psalm 22 is a point-by-point report of Jesus being crucified. In fact, did you know when Jesus is on the cross, you know what he says? He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Psalm 22.1. And you go back and scan Psalm 22 again, and you see him saying, David, the author, but pointing forward in this psalm to the one that would come, the Messiah, suffering, he would be forsaken. He would cry out to God in the daytime and in the nighttime. And when Jesus is on the cross, it's daytime and then it's nighttime as the sun goes dark. He says, they, people look at me and they laugh to scorn. And they say, he trusted God. Why don't God deliver him? That's Psalm 22, and that's exactly what they did. He says, I'm surrounded by dogs snarling and lions growling, ferocious men around me mocking me. And this is our Lord on the cross. He said, I'm, I'm poured out like water. We say things like that today. We say, I'm as weak as water. I'm just so sick. I can't hardly hold my head up. I'm just as weak as water. Our Lord on the cross says, I'm, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. I may tell all my bones. All this is Psalm 22. My strength is dried up. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Remember the Lord said, I thirst. 
They pierced my hands and feet. That's Psalm 22. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. All that is Psalm 22. And so, when the Lord takes them back through the Old Testament, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, I just have a, almost a certainty he lingered a while at Psalm 22 because it shows a suffering Messiah. And of course, the end of Psalm 22 shows a glorious Messiah, but the suffering precedes the glory. Is that not the way it is for us as well? Does glory come first and suffering comes next for the Christian, or is it the other way? No, it's the other way, isn't it? We suffer first as believers. We suffer in this world. We suffer the reproach of Christ. If we're doing it right, beloved, listen, if we're doing this thing right, we will bear reproach in this world. We will not be carried on the shoulders of men. We will be snickered at, avoided, mocked. I don't know how it will express itself to us in our particular sphere of life, but we will probably not win any popularity awards if we're, if we're true to Christ. If they spat on him and killed him and he said this, if they have hated me, they will hate you. If they've rejected me, they will reject you. You're not greater than me. The servant is not greater than his Lord. So we ought not to expect it too easy in this world. Shall I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? No. No, I shall not. Others fought to win the prize. Others sailed through bloody seas. I must fight if I would win. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the shame or the pain, supported by thy word. And so Psalm 22, I'm certain, was part of his exposition that day. Isaiah 53, that had to be part of it. Isaiah 53 is so clear. The Messiah will be a man of sorrows. We will esteem him very lightly. We will cast him aside as nothing. But he's wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was buried with the rich in his death. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He bears their sin, and he intercedes for them. What a Lord. What a Lord. The Messiah must suffer. But here's the point, the bigger point I'm trying to make from saying all that. He shows them from the scriptures the things they missed. They had the Bible. They believed the Bible, but they'd missed great themes, great passages. I wonder if he would say the same to us today. Go back and read your Bible again. You missed a whole lot the first time through or the, the, the last Fifteen times through, you still hadn't seen it all yet. And certainly that's the case. I'm not of the opinion that any man or woman, no matter how great a Christian they are, I'm not of the opinion that anybody's got it all together. Either in knowledge, we don't know some things, or in practice, we don't consistently practice the things that we do know. So I'm convinced that we're all in process, even the best Christian. Are you of that opinion? I don't think we can draw any other conclusion when we have... For instance, Philippians chapter 3, where the apostle Paul himself says, I have not arrived. Brethren, I count not myself to have attained, but I forget what is behind, and I reach forth to that which is before, and I press toward the mark for the prize of the 
high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't consider himself to have arrived. And he wrote half the New Testament. So where does that leave us? Obviously, we are in great need to be taught by the Lord. To go back and read again, beloved. Go back and read again. Jesus says, you've come to this conclusion that I must either not be the Messiah or or my credentials don't stand. You're so sad. Go back and see again. I have fulfilled exactly what the Scripture said I was going to fulfill, both suffering and now the glory. And he says to them something that I don't like to say to people, and I try not to say it. Oh, foolish ones. Have I called y'all fools lately? I try not to do that. I don't want to do that. But Jesus did it. He said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He says, you ought to believe your Bibles and not be so slow to believe it. You ought to believe the prophets. Believe the Bible. Sometimes you'll read your Bible and there'll be some hard things read. Don't be a fool. Bow your knees and accept it. Believe it. Don't be slow to believe. You say, well, that's, that's a hard saying. Jesus spoke some hard sayings. He would speak some hard sayings and a lot of the crowd would fall away. They would say, this is a hard saying. And even Jesus lost a lot of his followers, so-called followers. He spoke hard truths and they said, we don't know what to do with this. We can't handle this. This doesn't harmonize with what we've always thought. So we, we're going to go away. That's true of the Lord Jesus. So it'll certainly be true of us and in our day as well. The world says it's foolish to believe the Bible. Jesus says it's foolish not to believe the Bible. So you've got two competing viewpoints, don't you? The world says it's foolish for you to believe the Bible. And Jesus says it's foolish for you not to believe the Bible. So there's going to be a crash and a clash and a, a war. There's a battle going on. There's two major worldviews competing against the other. They cannot be meshed, harmonized, or reconciled. There are opposite ends of the spectrum. The world says, you are a fool if you believe that book. And Jesus says, you will be foolish if you don't believe it. And we have cast our lot with Jesus, haven't we? Let the world say what it will. Let the world say what it will. Jesus says, study your Bible. Read it again and be sure you didn't miss some big things. And believe what it says and don't be foolish, and don't be slow to believe. I think we should take from this, okay? We should take from this that Jesus Christ, our Lord, the dear Son of God who came into this world, who left the Father's bosom and came into this world in the incarnation to take upon Himself the human nature. This dear one, this Holy Son of God, the second person of the triune God says to us, read your Bible and cherish it and believe what it says. He puts a high value upon Scripture. Now here he is, the resurrected Lord. What does he do? He says, let's study the Word. What, could, could he have not just bypassed the Word? Couldn't he have just said... We're not going to go to the Bible because I'm the resurrected Lord, and I'll give you some new stuff right here on the spot. But he takes them back to the ancient scriptures that they'd had for centuries. 
And it says as they walk even, that their eyes were kept from seeing him and knowing who he was. He was there. He was just a stranger to them. They didn't even recognize him. And I love what one old commentator said. He said, God closed their eyes so he could open their ears. He kept them from seeing who he was so that he could point them back to the scriptures and teach them to think and read their Bibles correctly. And so he teaches them about himself from Moses and all the prophets. What a scriptural exposition that must have been. But the takeaway, I think, at least one takeaway is the Lord Jesus is very pleased when we esteem his word as the very word of God. This word has authority, church, brothers and sisters. The scriptures speak with the very authority of God. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. The words of scripture are authoritative in such a way that to doubt or disbelieve any word of scripture is to doubt or disbelieve God. Right? Because the very authority of God is in the scriptures. The inspired scripture, the God-breathed scripture both Old and New Testament. The Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, the 39 books of the Old Testament. The New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, the 27 books of the New Testament. What a book this is. What a book is the Bible. Written over 1,500 years. Think of that. How much changes in 1,500 years? How much has changed in the last year? In our world, we're like, I can't even keep up. I'm drinking from a fire hose here. Give me a break. Can we just settle down for a while? It's just coming fast and furious. In our last year or two, everything seems like it's crumbled and crashed. What about the span of 1,500 years? Well, take that span, put 40 different men in a 1,500-year span, on three different continents with three different languages and tell them to write about God. And you're going to get a mishmash of confusion, right? Well, yes, ordinarily, unless there's someone directing them as they write and someone preserving them from error as they write. And these 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three continents with three languages sing a symphonic harmony of salvation's song because there's a great conductor directing all of them. The consistency of the Bible, its internal consistency, whether it's Moses the shepherd or David the king or Matthew the tax collector or John the fisherman, all walks of life, they sing a consistent message. They say, Jesus is the lamb died as the sin bearer and he's been exalted to the father's right hand and all who believe on him will be saved. Some say it in type and symbol. Some say it with poetry and psalm. Some say it in letters written to churches, but they all have a united voice. The internal consistency of the scriptures is amazing. This book has a divine fingerprint all over it. 
You can't get two people to agree on hardly anything. You don't even agree with your spouse that's your, your dearest bosom spouse in the world. Y'all disagree on just about everything, but you, you hang in there, right? We do. How are you going to get 40 different people with that long a time frame from that varied a background to not contradict one another? There must be a master director directing this symphonic harmony of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. This book has told the future that would be impossible to know. It predicts the future hundreds and thousands of years before it happens. It names rulers that hadn't been born yet, that parents hadn't been born yet. It names them, and they will come, and they will give Israel permission to go back to the Holy Land and rebuild their temple. What do you mean go back to the Holy Land? They even got to the Holy Land. You mean they're going to the Holy Land, be driven out of the Holy Land, and then a king by the name of Cyrus that you've named, whose mother and grandparents hadn't been born yet, he's going to be born and he's going to tell them to go back. What does all this mean? It means God's in control of the future and he knows the future and he directs his people to write down these prophecies that are fulfilled to the letter. Psalm 22 was written 1,000 B.C. And it tells us almost blow by blow, point by point, detail of the crucifixion a thousand years before it happened. How is that possible? Because this is a divine book. It is a divine library of 66 books. It is important that we read it. So the whole takeaway of this sermon today is you haven't learned anything new, I know. But the whole takeaway is this. Don't forget to read your Bible. And keep reading it. Just read it some more. And as you read it, bow down before the author of it. He meets you there. He meets you as you read his word. The Holy Spirit don't say, see that Bible over there? That's God's word. The Holy Spirit says as you ingest it, oh, isn't this the very word of God? And you say, it sure is. It's as you read it, he meets with you there. It's a living book. It's a powerful book. It cuts us to the quick sometimes. It shatters our ego sometimes. It stops our mouth sometimes. It rearranges our schedule and our priorities sometimes, but oh, it's sweeter than honey. It's more precious than fine gold. It is his word. It is his love letter to us. It warns us, yes. It admonishes us. It cautions us. And it feeds us like nothing else can. Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, Why did you not believe what the prophet said? May I ask Jackson Bible Church, read your Bible and believe what it says. Don't be a fool. Don't neglect your Bible and don't be slow to believe it. They'd come to Jesus with questions just constantly. They wanted to know about, in Matthew 19, for instance, they said, "Uh, if a man puts away his wife for any reason, Is that okay? Uh, Moses said you could put away your wife. And Jesus says, have you not read? There it is. Have you not read the scriptures? He made the male and female at the beginning. And and they said, well, Moses gave a commandment that you could give a, a, a bill of divorcement. And he says, yes, because your hearts are hard. Moses did give you that.
But Jesus' first point was, go back and read it again. Read it. The way he answered that question was, take your Bible and go back and read it. Or they would come to him with a question about the Sabbath day. They would say, why are your disciples walking through the grain fields and grabbing the tops of the grain and rubbing it in their hands so as to break it open and eat it? They must have been really hungry, by the way. And they were. And he said, they said, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath commandment. They're reaping wheat on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, have you not read that the priests in the temple, they profane the Sabbath every day. They work in the temple, getting that showbread ready, taking the old bread out and putting in a new batch. And they keep the candlestick lit and they, they work on the Sabbath day. They're not guilty. And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And a greater than the Sabbath is here. And he spoke of himself. His point was right at the beginning though, have you not read? Or they would come to him and he would say, go and learn what this means. And he would quote a scripture. And this was the religious leaders. Should they not have known their Bible? Should not the Jewish leaders been the, the experts in the scriptures? And they thought they were the experts, but they missed a whole lot. They had blinders. They had blind spots. And I would suggest that that's still a possibility for all of us. So read your Bible humbly and read it. When you read something in the Bible, if your first response is to argue with it, please repent. Please repent. That's always the wrong position. When you read something in the Scriptures, realize it has the very authority of God there. And bow your knee and don't argue. I hear, I hear many times, I've done it myself. I'll read something. I don't do it as much as I used to. But you read something and you say, okay, okay. But this scripture says, and we hurry away from that to another scripture, as if this one's going to cancel out that one. I'm not real comfortable or happy with what this one just told me. So I'm going to run over here to this one. I like this one a little better. And it says something that kind of consoles me a little bit and takes a little bit of the edge off that one. But you see, beloved, God doesn't stutter when he speaks and he doesn't contradict himself. It's all of Scripture. It's all his word. And if this one says this and this one says that, we should bow before both of them. Instead of saying, yeah, but, we should say, hallelujah. I'm not going to be the accuser of the Scriptures I'm going to be the worshiper of this author of the scriptures and say, thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for showing me. Thank you for teaching me. Sometimes we'll read something in the scripture and we'll say that seems to contradict this other verse. And the operative word there is seems to contradict. For the Bible does not contradict itself at all. It contradicts us. It contradicts us which puts us back on our heels and many times defensive and we want to find fault with what it says instead of finding fault where it really lies with us. We love sin. We love ourself. We love our comfort. We love our stuff. And if anything says anything that would make us the least bit uh, convicted about any of that, then we say, well, I'm not sure why God says that there. That must be a, an error I trust none of us would say that. But we've got to be careful the way we come to Scripture. Believe all that the prophets said, Jesus said. 
Have you not read, Jesus said, go and learn what this means, and he'd quote scripture. They came to him one one time with a story. They said, a a man had a wife, and this man died, and he, his brother, in obedience to the Levirate marriage, his brother took the widow and married her so he could raise up children for the dead brother's name and his inheritance. And the second man died. And the third brother married her. And there were seven of them. Eventually, all seven of them married this woman. And and so the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, said, so tell us, Jesus, in the resurrection, who's going to have her as their wife? And they thought they had him. See, the Sadducees, they only accepted the Pentateuch. They only accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't accept any of the Old Testament except the first five books. And they didn't accept a bodily resurrection. And what does Jesus do? He goes back to Genesis, one of the books they did accept. And he says, have you not read that when God appeared to Moses at the bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had been dead many years when God said to Moses, I am their God. Not I was their God while they lived, but I am still their God. They've been dead a long time and they're with me and I'm their God. There is life after death. There is resurrection. And Jesus goes to their book that they accepted and he gives them that scripture that somehow they'd missed, the resurrection taught in Exodus. I said Genesis, I think earlier. Exodus 3. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living, not the dead, Jesus said. And his answer was, you do err. Asking such questions, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Our appropriate response to God's book is humility. There are some things in this book hard to understand. Shall we, shall we grant that? There are some things hard to understand. Peter says that in second, turn to second Peter 3.16. Let me show you that one. Second Peter 3.16. The apostle Peter says, Paul, our beloved brother, verse 15, wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. This is second Peter 3.15. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some, not all, not everything, but some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable twist, they rest, they distort it, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter viewed Paul's letters as scripture. I find it so odd today, I've I've talked to some folks that, they, they want to pit Jesus against Paul. They say, Jesus taught this, but, but Paul taught this, and I'm going to always side with Jesus. Beloved, Paul was Jesus' apostle. Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit. As Peter tells us here, these letters that Paul wrote are to be considered just like the other scriptures. We don't pit Paul against Jesus, or we don't say the red letters in the Bible are more important than the black letters in the Bible. They're all his letters.
But he says here, there are some things hard to understand. There are. Some things will not get figured out this life. Sometimes we're going to go through our whole life. We didn't quite figure it out. It was just hard. But he did say some things. Not all things or not most things. You know what the Bible is for the most part? It's crystal clear. It's just crystal clear. Some things are hard to understand, but most of it is just crystal clear. Children can understand it. When Paul wrote the letters to the churches, he wrote them to congregations, and in some places he would say, Children, obey your parents and the Lord. He assumed children would be in the congregation, and he assumed they would understand what he was saying. Because the scriptures are clear and they're easy to understand as the, as the rule goes, though there are some exceptions to that. Some things are hard. But for the most part, it means just exactly what it says. It doesn't take a PhD to understand it, and you don't need a decoder ring to, to figure out the riddle. It just means what it says. I know a man to this day that believes the Bible is a mystery book, and it means nothing what it says except maybe on some superficial level, and you really got to dive deep to get the hidden meaning behind every verse. And strangely enough, his key to understanding that hidden meaning is the apocryphal books that are not even in the Bible, those non-inspired books, those books that are full of errors and don't even claim to be Scripture. Those will tell us what the Bible really means, and therefore those are really more important than the Bible. It's a horrible, satanic substitute for the clear, authoritative Scriptures. Praise God for a Bible. Praise God for the Holy Spirit who lives in his people to help us understand it. Some of it we won't get fully, and our our knowledge will always be imperfect in this life. But if you take your Bible and you take some time and effort, it won't come to the lazy. It won't come to the distracted. If you make a determined effort and you focus and you give a carved out amount of time and energy and you use ordinary means, like a Bible you can understand. You don't have to read the Greek. Get you an English Bible you can understand. Use normal means and read it and humbly ask for help. And then perhaps check with good commentaries to see if maybe you're down a rabbit trail somewhere. If you're seeing something that nobody else in church history has ever seen, You might want to reconsider your view. But if you find that there have been dear brothers and sisters all through the history of the church that came to this same conclusion that that I'm coming to as I read my Bible. And you ask for the Holy Spirit to teach you, he will teach you. And you will understand what the Word says and what it means. We have this book and it tells us all that we need to know for salvation, and for the Christian life. It doesn't tell us everything about everything, does it? It doesn't answer every possible question we could ever dream up, but it tells us all that we need to know about salvation and the Christian life. It teaches us all we need to know to do the will of our God. And I think probably for all eternity, he'll be teaching us new things. But new Now we don't need it. We've got all we need. So have you not read? Have you not read?
Go and learn what this means and read it again. Read the scriptures. It's God-breathed. It is alive and powerful. It's not just a good guidebook. It you know, gives you some good life lessons. It's helpful if you're lonely. It's not just that. It's not <clears throat> like a fortune cookie, you know, where you crack it open and you read a little saying and you say, oh, that's a good little saying. I think I'll, I think I'll hold on to that one. I think I'll b- believe for that one. It's not little snippets and sayings. It's a story that is God-breathed. It is from God himself. It carries his full authority. Whatever it addresses is true. It never speaks untruth. Whatever it affirms is true. It never affirms a lie. Jesus had a high view of Scripture. He's our Lord. We should have a high view of Scripture. If I read something in the Bible and it seems to contradict, we're studying the Trinity on our online study. And so the Scripture teaches there is one God. And there's another parallel truth, like you look down a railroad track and there's a rail here and a rail there and they run parallel, they never intersect. But as you look at the horizon, it looks like they get a little closer. And it almost looks like they touch way out there at the horizon. We read things in scripture that are parallel and they don't seem to cross. We, We read there's one God, that's true. And we also read that there are three persons in this one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. And yet, there's not three gods. There's one God eternally existing in three persons. The three persons are God. Now we say, time out. I don't fully understand that. Okay, neither do I. So I read that and I say, Well, it must mean, no, don't go there. That's where you get in trouble when you try to logic your way out of things the Bible clearly says. If it says it, bow your knee. No amens? (laughs) If it says it, bow your knee. You say, well, I have the gift of logic and I have life experience and I'm, God has gifted me with a good intellect and I will figure this out. No, you won't. Every precious thing in our Christian theology is beyond logic. It's not illogical, but it's beyond the reach of our faulty logic. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? And yet he is. That's what the Bible says. You say, well, which is it? It can't be both. It's both. Bow your knee. Logic is flawed by sin. When sin entered into the world, it messed us all up. In our intellect, in our ability to use logic, in our interpreting life experiences. We don't take opinion polls and say, is this true or is that true? We say, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen. Amen. If the whole world says, I don't believe that, all we need is a a verse of Scripture is all we need. And we'll stand against the whole world, won't we? If we have a verse from God's book that says it, we should be prepared to endure the world's scorn. The apostles did. 
They were with Jesus, and they were counted as filth and the offscouring of all things, said the apostle. They were counted as that which you wash off of filthy animals and you get it out of your sight. The apostle says that's how we're viewed in our day, and they were his chosen instruments. So let us treasure our Bible. Let us read it with humility, and let me close. I'm I'm done. Every time they came to Jesus with these questions about divorce, the Sabbath, the resurrection, taxes, whatever, his answer was standard. Go back and read. He never one time said, you know, I understand why you're confused. It's so hard to understand the scriptures. We haven't understood it right for for a long time. The scholars don't even get it. So I understand your hesitations and your confusion. No, he said both to the scholars of his day and to the common people of his day, have you not read? So get on your knees sometime today and praise our God for his precious word spoken to us by apostles and prophets, inerrant, factual, true, consistent, powerful, life-changing, scientifically accurate, historically accurate, So many arguments could be made for the uniqueness of God's precious book called the Holy Bible. But you do not need arguments, I know, because you have come to that conclusion, haven't you, yourself? So let's stand there and praise in a moment. We thank you, Father, for the treasure that we have that we Pray you will help us not to take for granted. We have had it our whole lives. Our ancestors, our fathers and grandfathers have been in a unique and blessed position to have had the scriptures for many generations. I pray that we will be good stewards of this treasure, that we will pass it on to our children. And we will do so in the face of this hostile culture that scoffs and mocks at your word. We will do so winsomely and cheerfully and not be, Lord, uh, an antagonist for the sake of conflict, but that with calmness, composure, having sanctified the Lord God in our hearts, we will be ready always to give an answer to any man that asks us a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. We are nothing, Lord, except what you have made us. We made a mess. You have remade us. And you are remaking us still into the image of Christ. You've given us eyes to see. You've given us a heart to believe. You've given us the help of your spirit. I pray that we will be not foolish and not slow to believe what the prophets have said. May we come to our Bibles with a new childlike wonder. And may you continue to teach us for the glory of your name, for the strength of your church. Oh, Lord, we think of churches today that have become entertainment centers that that don't want to make the effort to make disciples, that 
Don't want to challenge people or hold people accountable. Don't want to say hard things that would maybe ruffle some feathers. That want to tickle ears and stroke egos and build a big name and a successful image. Please, oh Lord, please help us not to be impressed with these things. May we tremble at your word. You said to this man will I look, even he who trembles at my word with a contrite heart. I pray we will be as Jeremiah who said thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I pray we'll be like Job who said your words was more important to me than my necessary food. For we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Strengthen us in this and help these, my dear ones, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, fellow pilgrims in this journey. Make us so hungry, Lord, that we could not but devour your word. And as we do, may it produce the fruit that you require. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.